DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with Ignatius Press, presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In this exciting novel set during the French Revolution, Charles Dickens expresses sympathy for the downtrodden poor and their outrage at the self-indulgent aristocracy. But Dickens is no friend of the vengeful mob that storms the Bastille and cheers the guillotine. As with all of his stories, his passion is for the unforgettable and unrepeatable individuals he creates. The sorrows of the suffering masses, their demands for justice, and the indiscriminate fury they unleash take flesh in Madame Defarge, while the self-sacrifice that is the truest means of atonement and rebirth manifests in the unlikely hero, Sidney Carton. In A Tale of Two Cities, humanity does not show its best side in the mean streets of Paris or even London, but in the intimate circle of loyal friends that gathers around the Honorable Dr. Manet and his lovely daughter, Lucy. We now begin our discussion on Charles Dickens and A Tale of Two Cities. It's one of the first books I read in high school where it was a mandatory read. And before this book, everything else was drudgery. But there was something about A Tale of Two Cities that for this 15-year-old girl, as I'm reading it, and the ending, one that I just have never forgotten. And the characters are so vivid and the story so compelling. It's it, Is it Dickens at his very best I think so, actually. I mean, he obviously he wrote some wonderful novels in his time, but this is one that's, that's perennially popular, I think, because he, uh, he, he gets serious, as it were. You know, there's always an element of humor and the caricature and the grotesque. And of course, there's an element of the grotesque in A Tale of Two Cities, too. We think of uh, particularly Madame Defarge, mm-hmm. you know, that certainly that we have this archetypal or stereotypical, perhaps I should say, Dickensian caricature in some of the characters but not to the degree that we see in in other of his novels i think he this really is dickens uh, making an attempt at should we say for want of a better word realistic fiction looking at the horrors of the french revolution and the issues it raises and really for dickens who's a great caricaturist almost understatement in the delineation of some of the characters boy it is actually the tale of virtue and vice it is. It really displays how beautiful virtue can be when it's lived out and how horrific vice can descend us into a living hell. 
Absolutely. And also, you know, the other thing at work here are the two ways of dealing with injustice. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have injustice uh, that's meted out on various people, uh, Chaldonay, uh, by in, indirectly Lucy Manette and obviously Sidney Carton ultimately, or all characters that are treated unjustly. And yet, but they seem to, because of their virtue, they show the Christian attribute, the Christian virtue of being able to forgive, to turn the other cheek. And then you see the example of Madame Defarge, who, you know, it, it's revealed eventually has good reason to hate the Evermont family because of the injustice that, that her own family suffered at the hands of those aristocrats. And yet... Mm-hmm. Her response is one of vengeance and hatred and eye for an eye. So the other thing I think is going on here, I mean, there's obviously several things going on, but one thing that's going on is how do we react and respond when we find ourselves the victims of injustice? Do we, do we turn the other cheek, as Christians call to do, and ennoble our neighbors by our forgiveness and self-sacrifice? Or do we demand vengeance? Do we demand an eye for an eye? And uh, the uh, injustice that we suffer is thereby multiplied and magnified until it gets completely out of control, which, of course, is the great terror which proceeded after the French Revolution. And he uses the example of London, what's happening in England, and then what's happening in France, in Paris. And the dynamics of the the struggles of the Enlightenment and, and again, the rage against oppression by those who have and those who have not. It's a struggle that we seem to continually play over again and again, even up to the present moment in the world today. Yeah, I mean, see, basically, we know that, that, that Dickens is a recurring motif and a recurring theme in so much of his work, so many of his novels. This great identification with the plight of the poor. Obviously, normally he writes about London. That's the, that's, that's the city uh, of which he knows. But he sympathizes greatly with the poor and he's angry, shows great anger at injustice and indifference on the part of, of the rich. Um, and I think what you can see is that What's really happening here is a tale of two cities, but in some ways, the Paris of uh, the 1790s in the wake of the French Revolution is really being paralleled not so much with the London of the 1790s, though, of course, in the, in the novel, everything's taking place at, at that time. It's the London that's being projected, the story's being projected on, is the London of Dickens' own time of 60 or so years afterwards, and the industrial unrest and the poverty and the squalor in the big cities of, of modern London. So what he's really using the example of Paris in the 1790s to teach a lesson to his contemporaries in London and England in the 1850s. Mm. The plight of the poor in London at that time in A Tale of Two Cities, there's almost this comic element of they deal with their poverty by robbing the graves. In Paris, they're just so downtrodden that all they can do is create the graves. Yes, I'm, I don't know whether there's a, I speak, of course, as an Englishman here, whether there's a patriotic bias. The English, if you like, cope with poverty without behaving quite so bloodily and barbarically as the French. Now, you know, it, it certainly it's true that Dickens, as a Victorian Englishman, after, of course, centuries of war with France, you know, has, uh, should we say, um, a suspicion of the French. And you know, 
perhaps accentuated by his reading of uh, Thomas Carlyle's book on the French Revolution, mm-hmm. it accentuates, if you like, the barbaric dimension. And yet, you know, there's also sympathy because some of the French characters, such as uh, Charles Darnay and Lucy Manette's father, Dr. Manette, are obviously drawn sympathetically. But there's an element of, of bloodlustful barbarism amongst the French, which one can't really imagine Dickens uh, believed the English were capable and you speak of Charles Darnay, and he just gets bounced around in the court systems of not only England, but then also of France, and seems to try to live out that virtue, but keeps getting caught in legal quagmires. Yeah, he obviously has a, has a life that's troubled, many crosses to bear, the first of which, of course, is when he, he de- denies his own inheritance out of disgust for the way that his, his uncle treated the poor. Um, so he's a man of principle. He's a man of sympathy for the poor, even though he's, he's blue-blooded. He's from the aristocracy. And as you say, he falls to the injustice of the law on both sides of the channel. So he has, he, so he has a hard life and, of course, believes on two separate occasions. He's, he's arrested and, and released and then rearrested, believes that he's going to be um, killed. I mean, the, the, so the, the, the full panorama of stress and strife that Charles Darnay has to deal with in the novel. And yet, of course, ultimately for him and his family, thanks to the self-sacrifice of Sidney Carton, he lives happily ever after. Oh, Sidney Carton. I mean, he is the character that you see him portrayed in film noir movies a uh, hundred years later, that, that one who doesn't seem to fit in anywhere and is trying to struggle just to wake up in the morning and keep plugging around, and yet something happens. He's transformed. There, he has a cause because he begins to love. Absolutely. I mean, and Dickens, you know, is, is one of the great portrayers of, of conversion, of, of, of spiritual and moral conversion in his characters. I mean, we think of, of Ebenezer Scrooge, of course, in, in, in A Christmas Carol mm-hmm. uh, and his uh, astonishing conversion and how that changes everything. Uh, well, in Sidney Carton, we see the same thing. We have this uh, rather desolate and dissolute uh, in individual uh, who's uh, an alcoholic and a cynic and rather negative towards towards his fellow man and yet he's transformed by love he falls in love with Lucy Manette and then one the other thing I'd like to say by the way before we continue with Sidney Cotton is, is that mm-hmm. Lucy is a, is, is a portrayal of feminine strength we mm-hmm. see recurring in, in great fiction we see it of course in the novels of Jane Austen we see it in the plays of Shakespeare this powerful presence of the feminine holding things together, tying things together, that so much spurned by, by feminism, which seems to want to masculinize women to, uh, so that they lose this feminine strength. So I think we, we, we certainly don't want to pass over her very important role, Lucy Manette's very important role in the novel. But, but of course, Sidney Carton is, is actually, we can see that Lucy Manette may be even considered or we could consider her a Beatrice figure. You know, she is to Sidney Carton what Beatrice is to Dante, one who transforms him through her, her own virtuous presence, her own virtuous strength. She's transformed, uh, he's transformed, and much as Dante is transformed by Beatrice. And he actually doesn't have, there's no, uh, nothing in it for him. It's not about 
It's not a modern type of love where it's about feeling and about feeling good. It's the opposite, that basically he just wants to and promises her, in fact, in the novel, that he will sacrifice, he'll make any sacrifice necessary for her and her family. And of course, ultimately, his self-sacrifice is such that he doesn't only sacrifice himself for his beloved, for Lucy Manette, but for, for Chaldonet, his his love rival, if you like, the one who who successfully courts and marries Lucy. And, and it's through his laying down his life for his friends, that no greater love that Christ refers to, it's through his laying down his life for his friends that Lucy, Charles, and their children can live. In this book, those three primary characters, none of them are weak. I mean, they are strong literary characters, strong people. It's not as though Charles Darnay is the bumbling idiot love interest, or that Lucy is this frail waif who can't make up her mind, or any of those kind of caricatures we see so often today in novels, in movies, in those types of relationships. I mean, all three are compelling characters. Right. You know, and and this is one of the reasons why modern critics have a problem with Dickens, because uh, they have spurned virtue, and they've spurned the whole categorization of virtue and vice, and they, they take their relativism to the actual heart and core of the human person, so that nobody can can actually be transformed by virtue. No one can lay down their lives for, for another. Everyone has to be conflicted. Everyone has to maybe move towards something which we might call virtue. They have to struggle with it and fail, and always be you know, always basically ultimately become dissolute. It's a really it's as if Sidney Carton has betrayed that relativistic rule by starting off as a, as a, as a cynic and, and ending up as someone who lays down his life like a saint. To, you know, the, the transformation from cynic to saint is something the modern world cannot deal with and cannot cope with. And that, that's one of the reasons, I think, why, why many modern critics have a problem with, with Dickens and call Dickens an optimist. But Dickens is not an optimist. He, he, he depicts evil realistically. He depicts virtue realistically. And this is realism in the true and fullest sense of the word, certainly not optimism. I, I don't think we'll be giving away the ending for most people. They, they know the story. But I have to say those last moments for Sidney Carton, it is just poignant encounter with a nameless woman. She will never know the man he was. All she knows is the man that is walking with her at that moment. He became the man he needed to be. Right. In actual fact, yes, in some ways we can say in some sort of spiritual sense that he meets the wife he never had. Mm-hmm. And both of them are en route to, uh, to the guillotine, a source of strength and uh, resolution for, for her and allows her to embrace her own death so heroically. We, we need to remember as well, you know, that as, as with so much of these, these great works of, of Christian literature, that the, if you like, the key to the moral is uh, a passage from Scripture, you know, and in A Tale of Two Cities, the, the words of Christ are actually quoted. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And these words, which Sidney Carton hears at a funeral, uh, haunt him. They sort of, the presence of those words sort of are a haunting presence and transform his own outlook. As Christ is the resurrection and the life, those that die shall live, and those that believe in Christ 
shall live forever. So, of course, it's this that animates ultimately Sidney Carton's willingness to lay down his life for his friends because he knows that, that a life of virtue, that embracing the cross invariably, embracing the cross willingly and faithfully leads to the resurrection. The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, Book 3, Chapter 15 The second timbrel empties and moves on. The third comes up. Crash! And the knitting women, never faltering or pausing in their work, count two. The supposed Evermond descends, and the seamstress is lifted out next after him. He has not relinquished her patient hand in getting out, but still holds it as he had promised. He gently places her with her back to the crash engine that constantly wars up and falls, and she looks into his face and thanks him. But for you, dear stranger, I should not be so composed, for I am naturally a poor little thing, faint of heart. Nor should I have been able to raise my thoughts to him who was put to death, that we might have hope and comfort here today. I think you were sent to me by heaven. Or you to me, says Sidney Carton. Keep your eyes upon me, dear child, and mind no other object. I mind nothing while I hold your hand. I shall mind nothing when I let it go, if they are rapid. They will be rapid, fear not. The two stand in the fast-thinning throng of victims, but they speak as if they were alone, eye to eye, voice to voice, hand to hand, heart to heart, these two children of the universal mother, else so wide apart and differing, have come together on the dark highway to repair home together and to rest in her bosom. Brave and generous friend, Will you let me ask you one last question? I am very ignorant, and it troubles me, just a little. Tell me what it is. I have a cousin, an only relative, an orphan like myself, whom I love very dearly. She is five years younger than I, and she lives in a farmer's house in the south country. Poverty parted us, and she knows nothing of my fate, for I cannot write. And if I could, how should I tell her? It is better as it is. Yes, yes, better as it is. What I have been thinking as we came along and what I'm still thinking now as I look into your kind, strong face which gives me so much support as this, is this. If the Republic really does good to the poor and they come to be less hungry and in all ways to suffer less, she may live a long time. She may even live to be old. What then, my gentle sister? Do you think, the uncomplaining eyes in which there is so much endurance, filled with tears, and the lips part a little more and tremble, that it will seem long to me while I wait for her in the better land where I trust both you and I will be mercifully sheltered? It cannot be, my child. There is no time there and no trouble there. You comfort me so much. I am so ignorant. Am I to kiss you now? Is the moment come? Yes. She kisses his lips. He kisses hers. They solemnly bless each other. 
The spare hand does not tremble as he releases it. Nothing worse than a sweet, bright constance is in the patient face. She goes next before him, is gone. The knitting women, count twenty-two. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The murmuring of many voices, the upturning of many faces, the pressing on of many footsteps in the outskirts of the crowd, so that it swells forward in a mass, like one great heave of water, all flashes away. 23. Such an incredible book. It sets an exciting scene. I just remember it so vividly. It's as though when you read Dickens' words, you can actually visualize the moments, you can smell the smells. I mean, it is an incredible piece of literature. Tell you what, the, uh, the greatest witness of Dickens's power as a novelist is the fact that we can be talking about a book as sublime and as brilliant as a tale of two cities and then argue about whether it's whether it's dickens's best because obviously he he wrote so many works that are absolute classics that are up there with the greatest works of literature ever written and he didn't just write one or two you know you could you, you could certainly argue there's six or seven of dickens's novels are up there vying with each other as to which which is the preeminent novel that he wrote but certainly this is this is one of them that would be one of the the six or seven that we could argue about there's a, a character that you've mentioned earlier that I think I'd like to revisit before we conclude the discussion. And not to leave on a, a low note, but Madame DeVarge, yeah. she, boy, you talk, as you said, you alluded to, you find out the reason for her pain. How often do we see her every day now when we watch the news or when we are at some event, we get glimpses of her in everyday society, don't we? Absolutely. You know, that when, when, we, when you have a society that, that deliberately turns its back on the whole notion of Christian virtue, the whole notion of giving oneself for another, the whole na- notion of laying down one's life for another, the whole notion of turning, one's, turning the other cheek when one is offended, when one embraces a society and a culture which is all about me, it's all about selfishness, then basically we're creating a society of Madame Defarges, which is, which is scary mm-hmm. and bodes ill for the future because we can, we can see another era of intolerance. You know, we saw it in the French Revolution. Dickens, drawing on his own uh, reading of Thomas Carlyle, you know, did a lot of research and he, he knew about the Great Terror, which followed in the French Revolution. But of course, in the years after Dickens, we saw uh, the rise of uh, uh, whole generations of Madame Defarge's male and female versions of, you know, in, in, in Russia, mm-hmm. uh, the, with the Russian Communist Revolution, in China, with the, the Communist Revolution, in Germany, with the Nazi uh, Revolution. Uh, so we, we see what happens when people turn their back on the church. When people turn their back on the church and on Christian virtue, we have society and a culture of hatred and vengeance. And so really, you know, it, it's actually no surprise that Madame Defarge's sidekick, if you like, her closest companion, is someone who just calls herself the vengeance. It, it's someone that basically is, defines themselves as basically being a personified abstraction of something violent and destructive and negative. And, and this is actually historically, this did happen. In France, in the wake of the revolution, people changed their names to actually 
to embrace one of the monomaniacal ideas of, of, of the French revolutionaries. So, you know, basically, if we won't have Christ, we're going, we, we're going to have tyranny. There's nothing in between. Hilaire Belloc, you know, famously said, one of my famous, favorite mm-hmm. statements by Belloc is, outside is the night and strange things in the night. Well, if you won't have the church, because he's talking about the church when he says that, outside is the night and strange things in the night. If you won't have the church, you have the night. And strange things in the night, such as Madame Defarge and the vengeance. Leave it to Dickens to make us stop and pause and, and to round out even her character to realize that she didn't, it didn't have to be that way for her if only virtue had been shown her as a child and her family. That didn't have to perpetuate the anger and the vice and the vengeance. Right, and that's another thing we see in Dickens, how the virtue uh, leads to virtue and vice leads to vice, and the cruelty of parents mm-hmm. leads to to children who grow up to be cruel because they know nothing else. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, on a, on a more comic level, there's the character of Jerry Cruncher, mm-hmm. you know, in, uh, back in London. Now, he is a body snatcher, a resurrection man, you know, but his son, who, you know, wants to be like his father, uh, has no desire when he grows up but, but the, to be a body snatcher. You know, so uh, the, the point, of th- I think the other thing that's being said here uh, is that bad parents breed bad children uh, mm-hmm. and, it's a, and it's a self-perpetuating and downward spiral of anarchy that if we won't have parents that lay down their lives for their children, that love their children, which does mean sacrificing themselves and giving themselves, that selfish parents breed selfish children, and it's a downward spiral. I mean, again, Dickens' depiction of, of family life uh, and the cruelty of parents, as well as the virtue of parents, Lucy Manette, again, as a, as, as a mother, that, that we actually see this uh, perennial problem at the heart of society, uh, the, the problem of the family, that if, if you won't have a virtuous family, you're going to have, going to have a society which breaks up and, and breaks down and leads to the anarchy and the great terror, which we've seen repeated wherever secularism takes precedence uh, and takes control over Christianity. Well, I just wish we had more time, Joseph, to discuss this work. I have to say it's the the first book, again, as I said, when I was 15 years old, the very first book in my life, uh, upon coming to the ending, I actually cried. Mm. I mean, actual tears here. And I mean, reading a book. And yet those images and the lessons learned from that stay with me 35 years later. And it just, it's stunning work. Any final thoughts? Well, uh, merely that once again we see uh, in the Tad of Two Cities the edifice, the edifying edifice of Western civilization and how the gospel is at the heart of it and how the gospel commandment that we love the Lord our God and love our neighbor and lay down our lives for our friends, that, that how that animates these great works of literature and, and produce for us something which is timeless and timely at the same time. One of the great things about the great works of literature is that they're timeless, they never go out of date, but they're timely they're always up to date. And we see that in the Tale of Two Cities, as in so many of these other great works of literature that we've been discussing over the uh, weeks. Joseph Pierce, thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. 
We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.